Well, good morning, Sovereign Grace. I hope that you're all doing well this morning. Before we look at God's Word together, I just wanted to make one quick announcement reminding you that we will be having our Sunday evening service tonight at 7 p.m. You'll get that email later today. We'll be looking at Lord's Day 31, dealing with the keys of the kingdom. So we hope that you're able to join us, and we hope that we see you there. Well, this morning we're going to be taking a brief hiatus from our study of the book of Hebrews. Uh, We'll be looking at a few psalms over the next couple of weeks. It's been a great joy to me personally as a church over the last several years when we've had little breaks here and there for us to jump into some of the psalms. We've been working our way through them numerically, and this morning we find ourselves in the 31st psalm. And I'd like to read that to you before we get started. So let me read this for you, brothers and sisters, reminding you this is the word of the Lord. So let us hear it and receive it as such. To the choir master, a psalm of David. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress, and for your name's sake you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love, because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul, and you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief my soul, and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Because of all my adversaries, I've become a reproach, especially to my neighbors, and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I've been forgotten like one who is dead. I have become like a broken vessel. For I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side, as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face to shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. Let the lying lips be mute, which speak insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. O how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. In the cover of your presence, you hide them 
from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. I said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight, but you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. Let's pray. Sovereign Lord, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we acknowledge together that your word is forever fixed in the heavens. And we rejoice in knowing that your faithfulness endures to all generations. We ask now that your word would be our delight and that we would never forget your precepts. For by them and by your Holy Spirit, you have graciously given us life. Lord, we confess that we are yours, your possession, and so we pray that you would save us. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, I'm not sure if you're aware of this or not, but Psalm 31 was a psalm that the early reformer John Huss sang as he was led away in chains to be burned at the stake after being declared a heretic. And even more importantly, it was a psalm that we know Christ our Lord himself on the cross as he was paying the penalty for our sins, was meditating on, was reflecting on. It was on his heart and mind, and it was on his lips. And we know that because his dying words were, Into your hands I commit my spirit, which is a direct citation from Psalm 31, verse 5. And the reason I bring up these two historical examples is just to give us a little insight into the reality of the value of this psalm and the fact that the people of God throughout the ages, these are just a few examples, but there's many more, have cherished this psalm and found great comfort in it, even in the midst and the face of their most horrific sufferings. And it's my hope and prayer this morning that that we would likewise both be comforted and challenged as we hear its message. And its message is really quite simple. Uh, On the one hand, what we're promised, what we're told to expect in this life is suffering. Sometimes suffering and grief and persecution that's so intense that we're convinced when we're in the midst of it that it will swallow us whole and, and we won't even come out of it on the other side. And yet in that intolerable suffering that almost seems unbearable, The Lord's grace as a counterbalance will be sufficient for us because He is sufficient for us. His grace is sufficient for us, even in the face of unbearable suffering. And those are the the two realities that I want us to look at as we walk through this text. It's a bit of a messy outline this morning because of all the commentators I read Uh, They couldn't quite agree on what the overall outline of this text should be. And in some ways, I think that shows us the the disarray uh, that the heart of the the psalmist, the author of this psalm, David, is in at the time when he wrote it. But first, we'll look at our suffering 
which again is interspersed throughout the entire psalm, so I can't tell you specifically where we'll see it because we're going to see it all throughout the psalm. And second of all, we'll look at the Lord's sufficiency for us in the midst of our suffering, again, which is also interspersed throughout the entire psalm. And as we look at these two realities, what I want us to do as we look at them in turn is also to hear this psalm in the mouth of first David and his sufferings, then Christ and his sufferings, and then us and our sufferings. And then secondly, as we look at the Lord's sufficiency for us in our sufferings, I want us to hear this psalm in the mouth again of David and Christ and then ourselves, to see how the Lord is sufficient for David, Christ, and ourselves uh, in the midst of our suffering. And again, my prayer is that we're both comforted and challenged by what we learn from this psalm this morning. So let's look first then at our suffering in Psalm 31. Look at the superscript with me, which is in the original Hebrew. To the choir master, a psalm of David. And so what we know then right out the gate is that David is the one who wrote this psalm. David is God's chosen king to rule over Israel, to represent him. God has graciously entered into a covenant with David, and he is God's representative to Israel, to God's people. And as that representative, as we've seen in Psalms in the past, and you'll see in David's life if you've read those accounts in the Old Testament, David has many enemies because he represents the Lord. And these are enemies who threaten to put him to shame. We see that in verse 1. He says, In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. Let your righteousness deliver me. Because of his enemies, David is in fear of being put to shame, which means that God would be put to shame, his name and his people. And so David is saying, Lord, see this. Lord, know this. I have these enemies and I need to be delivered from them. And so David is making these complaints and his persecutors known to the Lord. And he says, I need to be speedily rescued from them. There's an urgency. We see that in verse 2. David says, incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. Again, we see this urgency. David is saying, Lord, they're pressing in. They're advancing quickly. And so there's this, this cry of desperation that David brings to the Lord in the midst of his suffering. And why does he need to be rescued speedily? Because David says they've hidden a net for him. His enemies have. Look at verse 4. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me, for you are my refuge. David's enemies are looking to trap him, to ensnare him. They're scheming against him. And so David is saying, Lord, save me from their trap. Save me from their net. Because if they catch him, David knows that they will be ruthless, not just in their pursuit of him, but ruthless in their treatment of him. And why is that? David says he knows they'll be ruthless because they worth, they worship worthless idols. Look at verse 6. He says, I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. And the reason that the fact that David's enemies worship worthless idols makes them ruthless is because when you worship an idol, you're basically a law unto yourself. And so there's no code of conduct above you that you seek to conform your behavior to. And so David knows they're going to do whatever it takes to capture him and to destroy him. And so as a result of this relentless, ruthless pursuit of David by his enemies, he says that he's filled um, with affliction and distress. Look at verse 7. 
I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you've seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul. David's saying that he's not just experiencing distress inwardly, which he is because of his enemy's pursuit and his suffering. He's also experiencing affliction in his body because of his enemy's pursuit. It's, it's affecting him body and soul. And so he's crying out to the Lord because he knows that if his enemies capture him, what's going to happen? Look at verse 8. He says, And you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. David knows that if his enemies capture him, they're going to lay violent hands upon him. They are going to harm him. They're not just going to capture him and keep him as a prisoner. They are going to seek to rip away his life from him. Now, up to to this point in verse 8, when David's talking about his sufferings, he relays them to them uh, in generalities. It's a little vague. But as we continue on in the rest of the psalm, uh, David gets much more specific about his sufferings and and paints the picture for us uh, in quite poetic imagery. And the first thing that we see is in verse 9 that his entire person, his body and soul are in distress. His inner and outer man are wasting away. Look at verse 9 with me. He says, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. Now, what I, what I love about the, the word picture that David uses here in, in my eye is wasted from grief, it, it's very rich, it's deep. I was reading a, a Hebrew commentator on Psalm 31, Alec Moitier, And he says that what David is saying by using this poetic figurative language of my eye is wasted in grief is that the eye is what we use to look forward to the future. It's what we use to plan. We have expectations and hopes uh, of life getting better and better. And so we make plans to that end. But what David is saying is my suffering and my enemies persecuting me is so relentless and so intense that I have lost any hope. I'm filled with nothing but grief, and I think that that is exactly what is going to follow me the rest of my days. I can't see beyond my current circumstances. And so David is just wasting away. He's saying, I'm physically and spiritually and mentally exhausted. I'm just completely shot in every sense of the word. You ever felt that way? I know I have. And David is saying this is a typical human experience when we're pursued by our enemies. And so because of this pursuit of his enemies and his suffering, David goes on to explain that he spends his life now in constant sorrow and sadness and depression. Look at verse 10. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. It's it's as if David is saying, all I can see from here on out is that my life will be year after year of just sighing and really waiting around until I die. That's how bad things are. But, but to add to that, David says, my, my burdens are almost made unbearable because added to that, I'm, I'm aware of my own iniquity. Look at the second half of verse 10. He says, my strength fails because of my iniquity. In other words, David says, I have all this suffering, and then on top of it, I'm struck with a sense of my own guilt and sin against the Lord. And I don't know if you've ever experienced that, in the midst of of intense suffering, to be made aware that perhaps your sin has a direct correlation and is a consequence, um, you are now suffering. Or maybe you're just aware of how you're sinfully responding to your suffering in the midst of it. 
And it makes your situation almost unbearable. And that's exactly what David is saying he's experiencing here. It's just another wave crashing upon him. And and he feels like he's adrift at sea in sadness and sorrow, and he's drowning in it. Now, you may think it, it can't get any worse than that, but it does. Because in verse 11, David says that he's feeling socially ostracized and isolated. Look at verse 11. Because of my adversaries... I've become a reproach, especially to my neighbors, and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. What David is saying is that his enemy's uh, persecution of him is so intense and so widely known that when David is seen by his acquaintances or someone out on the street, they're so terrified of being guilty through association with David that his enemies will then pursue them as well that David says, everybody is avoiding me. They're staying away from me. And so he's ostracized and isolated. And David says, socially, he feels like he's a dead man. Look at verse 12. He says, I've been forgotten like one who is dead. I've become like a broken vessel. The sad reality is that when you know someone, uh, not super well, but they're an acquaintance and they die, you may be saddened by that reality as you go to the Uh, funeral and as you hear the news of their death but over time eventually you kind of forget about them unless you're super close to them and David's saying that's what's happened to me socially it's like I'm dead to everyone around me it's like they've completely forgotten about me no one comes and sees me no one talks to me and so I'm like a dead man I've been relationally discarded he says I've become like a broken vessel in the ancient world they had clay pots that's what they used to to contain certain things. And once there was a break in that, you couldn't fix it. And so what would you do? You just threw it away. And David says, relationally, that's what's happened to me. I've been completely thrown away. And it's why? It's because his enemies are pursuing him and because they hate him. As a matter of fact, David's enemies hate him so much that they have surrounded him and are plotting and scheming to kill him. Look at verse 13. For I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side, as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. David can hear the whisperings of his enemies as they surround him. And he knows that they're scheming the end of his life, his demise. And he doesn't know when it's going to happen. But he's like on the edge of a knife, waiting for that to happen. And his enemies hate him so much that they're willing even to lie and slander him speaking and spreading lies about him so that they can gain more allies in taking his life. That's what he says in verse 18. Let the lying lips be mute, which speak insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. David's enemies hate him so much that they're willing to lie to cut him down. And again, that's not David's lowest point. David's lowest point comes in verse 22. Look at what he says. He says, I said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight. But you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Essentially what David is saying is that though he knows this isn't true, he's experiencing and it feels like God has completely covenantally cut him off from doing any good. David knows objectively that the Lord has entered into a gracious covenant with him. But experientially, it seems like the Lord has cut him off And and the Lord is doing him no covenant good, but the Lord has turned his back on him. And so here we see the depths of David's despair and suffering 
as his enemies are persecuting him. But here's the thing. Since David was a, a type and a shadow of a greater son that was to come after him, right? Because David is promised an offspring, a greater king, the one who will be the king of kings. He won't just be the, the king of Israel. He'll be the king of all kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. That was promised to David, an heir who would sit on the throne forever in 2 Samuel 7. And we know who that king of kings is. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we find the ultimate meaning. And we hear this psalm most clearly in the sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ during his life and ministry. And so we see many parallels. We can see the, how Jesus would sing this in his life is in ministry. And so like David, we know that Jesus' enemies plotted to kill him. And the shocking thing is not that that happens all throughout Jesus' ministry. I mean, that is shocking. But what's really shocking is how early that happens in Jesus' ministry. We see in Mark's gospel, um, after Jesus healed the man with the withered hand, his ministry has just started. And yet, even though it's just started, uh, Mark tells us in Mark 3, 6, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. That was the kind of hatred with which Jesus' enemies hated him. And we can see this all throughout his earthly ministry. And this was a form of Jesus' suffering in his life. And like David, we also see that Jesus' enemies lied about him and bore false witness against him. You remember when Jesus is on trial, uh, they cannot find a crime that will stick against Jesus. It's abundantly clear to everybody that he's innocent, and yet they don't give up. Instead, what do they do? They line up false witnesses uh, before the Jewish chief priests and elders and the scribes. That's what Mark tells us in Mark 14, verse 55 and 56. We read, Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none, for many bore false witness against him. But their testimony did not agree. And so what we see is Jesus' enemies filled with so much hatred that they're willing to lie so that they can end his life, so that he can be punished for crimes that he did not commit. They're willing to do whatever it takes in order to kill him. And so we see that Jesus suffered um, like David did, but even more so. And like David, Jesus' enemies persecuted him so severely that Jesus' close friends abandoned him when he needed them most. You remember after Jesus was betrayed by Judas and arrested, Mark records for us in Mark 14, verse 50, that all of his disciples left him and fled. Jesus knows the suffering of being isolated and abandoned by those who know you and love you when you need them most. And so we're thankful as we look at this psalm and at Jesus' life and ministry to know that we have a sympathetic high priest um, who suffered and is able to walk with us through our sufferings. But we also have to, to point out that even as we look at the similarities between David and Jesus, we also have to point out some of the great differences because there are significant differences. First of all, David did not volunteer for his suffering, right? He didn't say, oh yeah, pick me, pick me. He's actually asking the Lord, please remove these sufferings from me. But here's the thing, Jesus did not experience suffering involuntarily. He volunteered to suffer and to die. Jesus was not a victim. He willingly laid down his life and took it back up again because that's the mission that the Father 
had given him to do. Secondly, there's a big difference between Jesus and David because David suffered only at the hands of wicked men. But Jesus suffered at the hands of wicked men and under the wrath and judgment, just judgment of Almighty God. And he did that for our sins. And that's the third difference. David may have been suffering for his own sin. We can't know entirely. But Jesus suffered all his life, and especially on the cross for our sin. And so as a result, David, uh, Jesus could sing with David and say with David in verse 10, of Psalm 31, my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing, my bones waste away. That was Jesus's experience. But Jesus could not say with David that my strength fails because of my iniquity, because Jesus had no iniquity. Jesus has no iniquity. He was innocent of all sin and perfectly righteous. Instead, Jesus gave himself up and died because of our iniquity to pay the penalty for our sin. That's the mission that the Father had given to Jesus, and we're thankful for God's grace that Jesus faithfully carried that out. But brothers and sisters, it's important for us to know that this psalm is now our psalm as well. It will find voice in our lives as well because Jesus promised us that that would be the case. And so as a result, we too will suffer and be persecuted. He promised us In John 15, verse 20, remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. This is one of the ways that we know that we are Jesus' disciples, that we will be persecuted along with him. Paul promised the same thing. He says in 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Now, that doesn't mean that we'll have humans hunting us down like David and Jesus did, although at some point it's likely that our missionaries will. But in this life, we will always have our enemies of the flesh and the world and the devil relentlessly pursuing us and attacking us and seeking to destroy us. And on top of that, because of the fall, we all get sick, don't we? And we all grow weary from time to time. And we all have people lie about us, slandering us. And we all eventually face death and die. In short, we all suffer on this side of the fall. And as Christians, we will all suffer for Christ to varying degrees. And so we need to expect that. And frankly, brothers and sisters, we need to prepare for that because what's our temptation in suffering? When suffering comes our way, our temptation is to look for our own hand to deliver us from our suffering or to look for someone or something other than the Lord to deliver us from our suffering. And I'm not saying by that that there aren't things that we shouldn't do to seek to alleviate ourselves from suffering. But even in seeking to do that, we must first look to the Lord because If he doesn't use those means to alleviate the suffering, then they won't. And so ultimately, we need to look to the Lord because if we look to anything else first and foremost, then we will be guilty of committing idolatry, which is exactly what David warns us about in 
Psalm 31, verse 6, I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. Anytime we're suffering, that's the choice. We either turn to a worthless idol or we turn to the Lord. And brothers and sisters, may we turn to the Lord. Why? Because the worthless idols are not sufficient to bear the weight of your eternal soul. God alone is sufficient. And so let's look then at that reality. Secondly, we've looked at how we suffer. Now, secondly, let's look at how the Lord's grace and the Lord's person is sufficient for us in the midst of that suffering. Look back at verse 1 with me again. David says, In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. What I want to point out here is that word LORD in all caps is the, the, the word Yahweh. And that's the covenant name that the Lord gives to His people, revealing Himself to them. And here's what God is revealing to Himself, uh, to His people about Himself. He's saying, I am that I am. I am the God who you cannot completely comprehend because you are finite. You are my creature and I am infinite and I'm your creator. And so I am self-sufficient. All other things are reliant upon me for their existence and for their continued existence. But I am reliant upon no one and nothing for my existence. I am self-sufficient, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise. And so really what the Lord is telling His people is you can't fully know me, but here's what you need to know. I am sufficient for you. And so this is what David is reminding himself of. The Lord has entered into this covenant relationship with him, and the Lord is sufficient for David. And so David will not look to worthless idols or his own hand to save him. He will look to the one who alone is sufficient to save. And how can David know that the Lord will do this, will show his sufficiency to David through his suffering? Not because of David's righteousness, not because of David's character, but because of the Lord's righteousness. Look at the end of verse 1. David says, In your righteousness, deliver me. David's not pleading his righteousness or what he has or hasn't done to the Lord. No, he's saying, Lord, your character is unchanging. And so be faithful to your character, be faithful to your covenant, and show your sufficiency to me. And so on the base of that character, the character that God has revealed to David and his people in his holy word, David says, look at verse 2, Incline your ear to me, rescue me speedily, be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. David knows that his only hope of refuge and protection against the, the litany of sufferings that are beating down upon him is the Lord himself. And so he looks to the Lord and cries out for him to deliver him because he knows the Lord alone is sufficient to do so. And yet, even as he continues through this suffering, David is confident that the Lord is sufficient to lead him and guide him. Look at verse 3. For you are my rock and my fortress, and for your name's sake, again, notice, for the Lord's glory, because of his character, you lead me and guide me. David doesn't think that the, he somehow put God in his debt, and so the Lord owes it to David to lead him and guide him. No, David's saying, because of your character, because of your promise, I know that you will lead me and guide me. And David knows that because the Lord has entered into a covenant grace with David in which the Lord has wed his glory, the Lord's glory, and David's good so inextricably close to each other 
that the glorification of the Lord's character is David's good, and David's good is the glorification of God's character. And so David knows that the Lord will lead him and guide him for the Lord's glory and for his good, because the Lord is sufficient to lead and guide David. And because the Lord know, David knows that the Lord is sufficient for him, notice his complete abandonment of himself to the care of the Lord. Look at verse 5. He says, Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. Here's what David's saying. He's saying, Lord, I know you've redeemed me. I know you've saved me. You've done so graciously and mercifully and lovingly because when you found me, I was dead and lost in my transgressions and sins. I wasn't seeking you. You sought me. I was dead to you. I was lost and without hope in the world. And when I was in that utter darkness, you shined your light upon me. You regenerated me by the Holy Spirit. You redeemed me and gave me faith to trust in your Messiah and all that he would do, the promised one, promised all the way back in Genesis 3.15. And so, Lord, because you've redeemed me and because you've now put your love in my heart, I now want to give myself to you, body and soul, out of gratitude and thankfulness. That's exactly what David means when he says, into your hands I commit my spirit. He's saying, take my entire person, body and soul. I surrender it to you. It is yours. Use it for your glory, whatever that looks like. And you see, the only reason David can do that, surrender himself to the Lord, abandon himself to the Lord, is because he knows God's character. He knows who God is, and he knows he can trust God, that God is sufficient for David, even in the face of his overwhelming suffering. And so because that's true, even in his suffering, David rejoices. It's pretty shocking. Look at verse 7. He says, I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love, because you've seen my affliction, you have known the distress of my soul. And again, you see David's rejoicing because he knows the covenant character of his covenant-keeping God. He knows that because of who God is, he sees all and so he sees David's affliction and he knows and cares about the distress of David's soul. And how does David know that? Well, he knows that because that's exactly how he cared for Israel when they were in captivity to Egypt. You remember uh, back in Exodus chapter 3 verse 7 we're told that God sees the misery of His people. And because of His steadfast covenant love towards them, He responds and sends them Moses to deliver them from their captivity that they might worship Him in the promised land and relieve them from the persecution of their enemies and the heavy burden of their suffering. And what David is saying is that he rejoices because he knows that since God is not a man, that he should change his mind. God will be faithful to his covenant to David, even as he was covenant, faithful in his covenant to Israel. Again, David knows the Lord is sufficient to save. And so that's why David says what he does in verse 8. Look at verse 8. He says, And you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. David is saying, Lord, because I am safe in your Sovereign, good, loving, <coughs> merciful hands. You have not delivered me into the hands of my evil, wicked, and cruel enemies. And so whereas David once felt cramped and surrounded by the persecution 
of his enemies who have surrounded him, and he didn't feel like he could breathe or even move. Now David has been brought out to a broad place where he can stretch out and move around and, and breathe. It's this beautiful word picture of God's deliverance and redemption of David. But here's the thing. Just when you think that the rest of the psalm is going to be full of praise and joy because David has been delivered from his enemies, look at verse 9. He says, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. Now, from our perspective, what it looks like is that David has just fought against his hopelessness and he's rested in the Lord's sufficiency for him. And then all of a sudden, he's reverted all the way back uh, to the depths of despair as he's overwhelmed by his sufferings and the persecution of his enemies. And here's the thing, brothers and sisters. I think that's exactly what's going on here. Because isn't that our experience? In prayer, as we meditate on the Lord and His goodness and His promises, we're able by His Spirit uh, to, to grow and, and in our faith and in our assurance and our confidence that God is for us and sufficient for us, even in our suffering. And then yet, even when we experience that, it's like the waves of doubt and suffering come and crash upon us and we're swept up in doubt and, and weakness again. And I think that's exactly what's happening to David here. Behold the, the humanity um, that God reveals to us in His Word that all of His people experience. I think it's a, a great comfort to know that we're not alone. But this is the typical experience of God's people when they're abject suffering. But here's the issue. The issue is not that God is insufficient. It's that our hearts are slow to believe. Our faith is weak. We, we, we grow weary physically of the suffering that we experience, and so we get beat down. And so what we see David doing here, essentially, is praying the same prayer, but with greater depth concerning both his own suffering and God's sufficiency. And we've already looked at David's suffering in verses 10 through 13. So jump down with me to verse 14 instead. Look down at verse 14. David says, But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. Now, what's amazing about this is that, again, because David knows the Lord is sufficient, even in the face of his horrific sufferings, what he's able to say is, Lord, you are my God. And that's amazing because from David's experience, the way he feels, if he looks at his circumstances, it doesn't look like he is being treated as God's people. It doesn't look like God is being faithful to his covenant to David. And yet David knows that the Lord actually is, even in these unbearable sufferings. And so his testimony and his proclamation is, You are my God, even when I can't see how I'm being treated as your people. And so it's as if David is saying along with Job, Though God slay me, I will hope or trust in him. And that's exactly what David says in verse 15. Look at verse 15 with me. David says, My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. This is the same idea here as when David said back in verse 5, Into your hands I commit my spirit. David's saying is that every year of his life, every month, every week, every hour, moment by moment, his body and soul... All of his time here on this earth is not in his own hands. 
And it's not ultimately, despite all appearances, in his enemy's hands. No, but in God's hands. And David knows that his covenant Lord is the sovereign over all things, and so it brings him great comfort to know when it seems like life is just spinning out of control and in complete disarray, and he doesn't know up from down that the Lord is sovereign and his times are in his hands. Because David knows, even in the midst of all of this, that the Lord is his only sufficiency because the Lord is sufficient. And in the midst of this suffering, what does David long for more than anything else? He, he longs for deep abiding fellowship, a, a sense of the Lord's nearness and communion with his all-sufficient God. We see that in verse 16. What does he say? Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. Now, I don't know if you caught it, but the beginning of verse 6 there is the very beginning, an echo of the ironic blessing that we have recorded for us back in Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 through 26. This was the, the blessing that the priests would say over God's people. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you. And that's what David is praying for here. Lord, because of Your faithful covenant love, shine Your face upon Your servant, Your appointed king over Israel. And he's confident that his covenant Lord will do so because the Lord is sufficient for his people. Next, as David looks to the sufficiency of the Lord, we see that he appeals to the Lord's justice. He appeals to the sufficiency of the Lord's justice in his situation. Look at verses 17 and 18. He says, O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. Let the lying lips be mute, which speak insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. David knows that the Lord alone is the just judge of all mankind. He sees all. He knows all. He hears the words that all men speak. He judges their motives. And so David is crying out for the Lord to judge between him and his enemies. And David is saying, Lord, judge them, because the only way that their lying tongues are going to stop wagging is if you cut them off, is if their lying, wagging, slanderous tongues lie silent in the grave. And so David is crying for judgment upon his enemies. And David is entrusting himself to the Lord, the one who judges justly. And David is confident that even if the Lord does not cut down his enemies in this life, on the great day of the Lord, he will. And so his enemies will fully and finally be Silenced, And so we see that God is sufficient for David in justice as he suffers unjustly at the hands of his enemies. Next, we see that God is also sufficient for David in his goodness. The Lord's goodness is sufficient for David. Look at verses 19 and 20. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of of the children of mankind. In the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. What David is acknowledging here is that God is, is not just a good, but that God is goodness himself. David knows that about God. God is goodness itself. And so anything that can be said to be good 
is because it participates in God's goodness. It's received some sort of goodness from God because God is the source of all good things. And so what David is saying is, as he reminds himself of this truth, is that even though he's having a hard time seeing God's goodness to him in his circumstances, he still knows that God is both good and good to David objectively. He knows that's true even though he can't really see it. And David also knows, more importantly, that at the end of all things, God will shower his goodness upon him. All the goodness that he stored up for David, even as a parent stores up an inheritance that will be lavished upon their children. And note that David says that this is not just true for him individually as Israel's king, but it's also true for all God's covenant people, for the entire nation of Israel. He, the Lord, is a refuge of goodness for them all. (coughs) And so that's exactly why David then closes this psalm recounting his own personal experience of God's sufficiency amongst the ups and downs of David's suffering so that other believers would see and hear from David's example and likewise turn to the Lord and trust in him even in their darkest days. Look at what David says in verses 21 through 24. Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me. When I was in a besieged city, I said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight, but you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. So what David essentially is saying here is look at my own suffering as horrific as it's been, and then look at the Lord's sufficiency for me in the midst of that suffering and know, covenant people of God, that He will deliver you as well. As He's delivered me, He will deliver you. So trust Him, look to Him, love Him, give yourself to Him, body and soul. Commit your spirit and your time into His hands, knowing that He will be faithful to his covenant, for he is God and not a man that he might change his mind. And so this is David's testimony, and it's recorded that he might admonish all God's people to trust in the Lord, to look to his sufficiency even as they suffer. And here's the thing, as we've seen that sufficiency of the Lord in David's life, we want to now see that in Christ's life as well, because again, this psalm ultimately finds its significance and its voice in the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. But again, right out of the gate, (laughs) we have to distinguish between David and the Lord Jesus Christ because there's a significant difference between the two of them. And one of those significant differences, the most important is, that David is merely a man. He has a human nature. Whereas when we look at the Lord Jesus Christ, he is one person and has two natures. He has a human nature and a divine nature, Uh, that make up one person. And so when we talk about or speak of the Lord being sufficient for Jesus and his suffering, we're speaking according to Jesus's human nature, not his divine nature. And we've got to keep that in mind because according to Jesus's divine nature, we know that he is God himself along with the Father and the Spirit. Having said that, when we look at Jesus's earthly ministry, 
we see that like David, Jesus entrusted himself to the care of his father. As we mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, Jesus cries out in Psalm, uh, he cries out Psalm 31 verse 5 as he's dying on the cross, experiencing the fullness of the father's wrath, paying for our sins. And they were his last words then uh, that we have recorded before he died. We have them recorded in Luke 23 verse 46. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. And so we see Jesus, our Savior, as he's bearing the weight of Almighty God's wrath for our sins. He's finding his sufficiency in his heavenly Father. And like David, when Jesus was experiencing the height of his suffering on the cross, under the wrath of Almighty God for our sins, according to his human nature, according to his human nature, he longed for his Father's face to shine upon him, which is exactly why Jesus cried out what he did on the cross in Matthew chapter 27, verse 46. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And here's how we need to, to think about that. While the Father never ban- abandoned the divine Son on the cross, right? It's not like the Son somehow was booted out of the divine Godhead. That's impossible. But according to his human nature, Jesus did experience the withdrawal of the Father's blessing, and he experienced instead the Father's just wrath for our sins in our place. And so at the cross then, what we behold is the great vileness of our sins on the one hand, that the only payment sufficient to pay the debt is the death and suffering of God's own Son. And yet at the same time, on the other hand, we also behold the greatness of God's love and grace and mercy towards us because when we were His enemies, He sent His Son, His only begotten Son, to die for us. And like David, we see Jesus entrusting Himself to His Father, the one who judges justly, even as He voluntarily surrenders His life into the hands of His hateful enemies. Speaking of Jesus' betrayal and trial and crucifixion, Peter writes in 1 Peter 2.23, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus didn't take matters into his own hands. Instead, he was entrusting himself to his Father, the only just judge of all mankind, because his heavenly Father's justice was sufficient for him in the midst of suffering at the hands of his enemies. And lastly, like David, Jesus endured the shame of his suffering by trusting his Father's goodness. That's why the author of Hebrews writes in chapter 12, verse 2, that Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus knew his Father's goodness was sufficient And so he trusted him. He he wanted the cup to pass according to his human will if there was any other way. And yet there was no other way. And so he yielded himself to the Father's goodness and drank the fullness of that cup. And after he had done so, after he was crucified and died, he was resurrected and exalted to the name above all names and is seated at his Father's right hand. So we've seen 
the Lord's sufficiency in David's suffering and in Jesus' suffering. And brothers and sisters, we need to now see the Lord's sufficiency in our suffering because this psalm is now ours to sing in Jesus because we're united to Him by grace through faith. And so it's been granted to us not only to suffer, but also to experience the Lord's sufficiency in that suffer, that we might persevere and endure to the end. And so we rejoice then to know that the Lord, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are sufficient for us, no matter how horrific or long-lasting our suffering is. And so, as a result, like David and Jesus, it's our joy to entrust ourselves to the care of our Heavenly Father. And we should take great comfort in knowing that our bodies and souls are right where they need to be as we commit them into our Heavenly Father's hands. Because He will keep us to the end, brothers and sisters. No matter what suffering you're going through, know that Jesus has promised in John 10, 29, that no one is able to snatch us out of the Father's hand. The Father's good, wise, loving, all-powerful hand. No one can snatch us from it because He is sufficient to keep us even in our most severe sufferings. And we rejoice to know that even when it may feel like God is far away and distant or has even abandoned us, that He really hasn't. He will never forsake us, even though that's what our sins deserve. And He will never forsake us. Why? Because He forsook, He abandoned His Son on the cross in our place for our sins, where Christ became the curse for us. And so in Christ, we are now reckoned as righteous because of Christ's righteousness and because His righteousness is counted as our own. (coughs) In other words, the ironic blessing is now ours in Christ. The Lord has blessed us and will keep us. The Lord has made His face to shine upon us and been gracious to us. The Lord has lifted His countenance upon us and given us peace, and He's given us these things and done these things for us in Christ. Now, obviously, we always want to be experiencing the nearness of the Lord, don't we? But it's a great comfort to know that even when we don't, experience that. The reality of it is still ours in Christ. He is sufficient. The Lord is sufficient for us, even under that kind of suffering when the Lord feels far and distant. And like Jesus and David, it's our privilege to trust in the justice of our Heavenly Father, even as we suffer unjustly at the hands of our enemies. Because more often than not in this life, they get away with those injustices, don't they? We don't see justice happen often in this life. But here's the thing. We know that when Christ returns, the one to whom all judgment has been entrusted by the Father, when He comes again, all of the scores will be settled. Justice will reign when Jesus brings about the consummation, the fullness of His kingdom that He inaugurated in His first coming. And we can know that that will happen. Why? Because vengeance is the Lord's. And so as we are sinned against, sometimes greatly, often greatly, we can entrust that to the Lord and not be eaten up with vengeance and bitterness ourselves because we know that the Lord will set the record straight. Instead, we have the privilege of following the example of the Lord Jesus Christ and obeying the word of the Lord that was written down by the Apostle Paul in 1 Peter 4.19. Therefore, let those who suffer 
according to God's will, entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And lastly, like David and Jesus, we can know that no matter how much suffering or loss or persecution we experience, our Father's goodness is sufficient for us. Now, we won't see the fullness of that goodness in this life, but brothers and sisters, rest assured, we will know that in the next, which is exactly why the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Because you see, it's our Heavenly Father's good pleasure to lavish upon us His abundant goodness. And we know that in this life, but we will know that in its fullness on the day when we are glorified with Him. And in the meantime, His goodness is sufficient for all of the loss, for all of the suffering that we experience in this life, that we receive from His sovereign and good and wise hand. So brothers and sisters, behold the sufficiency of our God for our greatest sufferings. I know many of you are suffering. All of us are suffering to varying degrees. And so it's my prayer that we would rejoice in knowing that He is so sufficient, the Lord is so sufficient for us and our salvation, that He is sufficient even when we can't clearly see His sufficiency. His sufficiency is not dependent on our ability to be able to see that. And rejoice in knowing that that we have a sympathetic high priest who has suffered as we have, and even more. He's the one who walked the path first that we now walk. He walked it perfectly before us. And we now follow in His footsteps with Him. And we can tread that path knowing that His perfection is counted as ours, and that even as we sin in the midst of suffering, that He has paid even for that. So let us fix our eyes on Him, knowing that He is with us, that He will never leave us or forsake us, and that He will be with us even to the end of the age. And because that's true, out of gratitude and thankfulness, let us take heart. Let us be of good courage. We can entrust ourselves to the Lord because He is sufficient for us. Let me pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank You that we do now love You because You first loved us. We thank You for the promise that You will preserve us through our many sufferings in this life because You are sufficient for us. We pray that by Your Spirit, You would conform us more and more to the image of Your Son, that we might be strong and let our hearts take courage in You, even as we wait for You. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, we pray. And we ask this all in Your name and for Your sake. Amen.